Well, good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. It is January 7th. Can you believe it? And as we head into the new year, I know many of you have probably already set goals for yourself. I don't know what it is. Something about the change of the calendar that we think gives us permission to uh, reboot, restart our life. Um, to change our motivation, the way we think and the way that we live. And I know that myself personally, it's something I look forward to, New Year's, New Year's goal setting. I don't know why, but I enjoy it. I like it. Most often when we do set goals like that, it's because we want to improve something in our lives. There's something in our life that as we examine and as, as we take some time to think about it, we can see that there needs to be a change. And sometimes that change becomes so obvious, that, obvious to us that it disturbs us. And that is the motivation for change, that something bothers us, something disturbs us. John Cotter, who is a, an expert on organizational leadership and change management, uh, he's written a number of books. Uh, he wrote a unique little book together with, uh, co-authored, uh, called Our Iceberg is Melting. And it's a fable about... Um, in the Antarctica about a, a colony of penguins. And in particular, the, the main character of the story is Fred. No relation. Uh, his name is Fred. And he discovers that their iceberg that they've lived on, that their colony lives on, is melting. And he can see that this is going to be a big problem in the future because the iceberg is melting. But the problem is the, it's the only home that, that his colony has ever known. And when an iceberg melts, it doesn't melt swiftly. It's something that's going to occur gradually over time. But as Fred examines the situation, he knows they are in trouble. And you can imagine the resistance that Fred is up against to begin to convince his colony that they've got to do something. And, and Cotter's first point in this fable as he's talking about organizational leadership and change is that in order for people to change, there must be a sense of urgency. Something has to disturb them so that they feel it is urgent and they need to change. When I think about that and we think about it personally, we, we can ask ourselves, like, what bothers you? What disturbs you? What needs to be changed from your perspective we're beginning a new series today out of the book of Nehemiah called Rebuild. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah is the second part, really, of one book. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah originally were one book in the Hebrew Bible. We're looking at Ezra chapter 1 this morning. And, and Nehemiah is written in a couple of different sections. Chapter 1 to 6 is about the rebuilding of a wall. Chapter 7, it lists a whole bunch of people that are involved in the story. Chapter 8 to 10 is about the renewing of worship. Chapter 11 and 12, it talks about the repopulating of the city of Jerusalem. And by the time we hit chapter 13, there's already a renewal needs to happen within the renewal. But as we look at it this, this, this next few weeks, we're going to cover chapter 1 to 6. And we're going to look about Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall. Hence the title of the series, Rebuild. You've heard that phrase before, let's build a wall. Um, but this has very little to do with immigration and everything to do with protection and preservation of life. In a first, in an in old ancient world city, every city would have a wall, except Jerusalem. We read in Nehemiah chapter one, starting in verse one, these words. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. 
Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa in the capital that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Things are not good in the report that Nehemiah hears. There's a change that needs to happen. When we think about change, one of the things that we, one of the ways that we can respond to a need for change is apathy. Sometimes as we progress in life and circumstances develop and don't necessarily go the way that we expected, um, at some point we can stop dreaming and, and we can crystallize into the situation that we're in and we settle for, for where we are at and what's going on. Maybe you've tried in the past, you got burned and you, you put out an effort to change and it didn't work. Um, the situation is less than ideal. It can be a dysfunctional relationship or maybe even a a dead-end job that uses none of your skills, but you're just tired and, and you, don't, you don't have the energy to enact a change. You just settle. It takes work not to be apathetic. You have to engage yourself, apply energy. You have to believe in something. You have to believe that change can happen. So sometimes when we see a need for change, it doesn't mean we're going to respond to it because we can be apathetic towards it. Another response to the need for change can be indifference. I'm a person who likes to try to keep up with what's going on in our world when it comes to the news, like what's happening, not just in my city, but around the world. And so, you know, I've got a, a number of news apps. I've, I watch the evening news periodically. I PVR it and skip through it. So I, I try to stay current and, and know what's going on in the world. But there's a danger to that. Most of the news that's presented to us, aside from animal news, I don't know if you've noticed that, but there's always a dog story or an animal story. So if you, if you watch the news on TV, from, and if you were to watch it every day, you'd see a dog story, animal story, dog, dog story, animal story, because um, often they present to us what, what we want to watch or what, you know, what grabs us. And so it, it's obvious that we don't want to watch good news. We, we want to see bad news. And so aside from animal stories, it's mostly bad news. And the problem with that is, is that as we see bad news after bad news, after a while, you become, there's so much of it, we're bombarded with so much of it that we become desensitized. And, we can, and the danger is we can become completely indifferent to it. And so as I take my ripple chips and I, and I dip them in my artichoke, artichoke Dip, and I can watch as, as I see another story of, of, of people fleeing for refuge as they, as they encounter a rough seas in the Mediterranean and, and, and they drown. And I see that, and I, okay, I've, I've seen that before. I, I see the news of the starvation in Sudan as a result of the war going on there and the, the, the trail it's left behind of people starving and, and the needs of the, of, the, of the people there for food. And, and I see that and I go, I'm, I'm sorry that's going on in their lives, but I'm largely indifferent. That's the danger to, to hearing all that bad news. Nehemiah's in Susa. Susa is today the Iranian city of Shush. In his day, it was the winter city for Persian kings. It was a capital city, but it was also a winter city for Persian kings. Think Palm Springs. Think resort. 
That's the kind of city it was. Nehemiah is not Persian. His, his name is Hebrew, and Nehem means comfort. Yah refers to Yahweh, God. So his name means the Lord comforts. And that he is in Susa means if we, if we know a bit of the history of, of his people as a Hebrew, is that he's part of the exiles. He's part of a group of his heritage of Israel, the nation of God, who because of their wickedness against God had been punished, disciplined by God, and they had their city of Jerusalem had been ransacked, and they en masse had been deported. They'd been transferred to the place of Babylon. And now years later, there's, there's a new ruler, and, and people had settled into Babylon, but there's a new ruler, and, and Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and those behind him from Babylon have been conquered, and now there's a Persian rulers that are now ruling, and, and they have a different view of, of how to treat some of these foreign nations that have been brought into their vicinity. And so they let some of them go back, and we read in Ezra, that, that the king lets some of them go back and they focus on rebuilding the temple. But Nehemiah is still in former Babylon and as he's there, these uh, Hananiah and others come from Jerusalem and he, he has a conversation with them. There's no, um, there's no internet, there's no wireless. You, he, you know, he doesn't know what's going on there and so he asks the question. He wants to know about those that maybe were still there from the beginning or those that have gone back under Ezra's, Ezra's uh, with Ezra and under the, the release for, to go back. How are they doing? What's going on there? And the news is not good. The people there are under disgrace. They're in great trouble and shame. It's a mess. And how do you know it's a mess? Because the, the, the city's walls, they're broken down and the gates are destroyed. See, a, a city wall, I mean, we don't have one around Abbotsford. Um, Chilliwack doesn't have one. Surrey doesn't have one. Vancouver doesn't have one. So, so what does that mean? Well, in, in those days, a city wall was absolutely necessary for survival for protection in a world that was often hostile, even with weather elements, wild animals, gangs, but most certainly enemies. A, a wall was the city's protection. It made the city defensible. Without any city, that, without any wall, the city was completely vulnerable. And it was considered to be a disgrace. Like, if a city didn't have a wall, that was a disgrace. And so the people are in great trouble and shame because Jerusalem doesn't have a wall. It's broken down. And beyond that also, when you think of Jerusalem was considered to be their capital, their center for worship, what, what the message that that sent was that their God, he was a God who couldn't deliver. He's a God who was incapable. He was a God who was weak and defeated. So when you think of Jerusalem's broken down wall, you need to think of these two concepts that it represents. The well-being of the people is not good and the honor of God's name is being brought to shame. Should that concern you? Should it concern Nehemiah? He's in Susa. Winter resort, capital, Susa. When we dig a little deeper, as we will in the weeks to come, like life is pretty good for Nehemiah. Some lives are, are so inspirational, they challenge us to live better. Nehemiah is an example of what a godly person is moved by and how he responds. 
Instead of apathy or indifference, Nehemiah identifies with the people and he takes ownership for the plight that they are under. Just this last Christmas, we were reminded of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, how the ruler of the universe came to earth the, the creator, the one who placed the stars in position, who called them by name, come, comes to earth and so identifies with us in our humanity that he becomes a child in order to walk in our shoes. We saw how Jesus was not indifferent, but he took on his, our predicament as his own. He identified with, with us. He took ownership. So Nehemiah identifies, he takes ownership, and as he hears this news, he is moved. I sat down, Nehemiah says, and I wept and mourned for days. I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. Can you imagine if we loved God's people like that? Can you imagine if we had a concern for God's glory like that? To be moved. I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. I find it interesting how those who are remembered by God in his word and scripture so often are those who care for God's honor and care for the well-being of his people. There's a story in Acts chapter 17 where Paul goes into this uh, Grecian city of Athens and he scouts, as he scouts out the city, he sees idols everywhere, all kinds of worship to all kinds of different gods. And as he sees this, the scripture tells us that he is literally moved in his bowels. He is so stirred inwardly. Why? Because people don't know, because people don't worship the one true God because he's not getting the glory and honor that he deserves and they're not experiencing the well-being that they could know if they only knew the God that Paul knows. So he's moved to the core. When you take ownership, when you identify with things and they're not the way that they should be, you are moved. And then what do you do? As we look at Nehemiah, it's so critical to see And it really is hard to miss because it happens seven or eight times in this section of chapter one to six as we look at Nehemiah's life. Nehemiah prays, Nehemiah prays, Nehemiah prays, Nehemiah prays. Seven or eight times in this section. It's like this is this natural reflex to the circumstances that he's under. So we're introduced to that here in chapter one. In verse four, he says, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So he's moved, and then his first response is to fast and to pray. We are shown Nehemiah is a man of prayer. All of us are invited into that kind of lifestyle to be people of prayer, people who are constantly communicating with God. Nehemiah is a man of prayer. As I was um, writing my notes on this earlier in the week, and, and I just wrote man of prayer, I was struck by the idea that he's a man of prayer because, you see, so often as my observation within the church today, um, 
Women are much more, it seems, responsive sometimes to what God is doing. They're much more into prayer. And as I searched it out, the research would bear that out. Angus Reed, last year, 2017, they, they, um, as they did their research, they, they found that women are more responsive to, to God. They're more, uh, more religious than men are. The Pew Research Group, they surveyed 84 countries. They saw that women in general are more religious than men. But listen, here's the largest gap in the genders was this, the gap in, in daily prayer life. Women pray more than men. Women are more into prayer. Why is that? I see that. Why is that? I don't have an answer to it. Is it because prayer is, is too immaterial for us as men? Is it because we, you know, with prayer, you can't work with your hands and, and construct something like so many men like to do? What, why is it? Have we presented prayer as something that's just too touchy-feely? Do we understand the nature of prayer, the warfare that it can be, the change that it can accomplish with prayer? What will it take for us as men to enter in and become men of prayer? As Nehemiah was. I'd love to hear from you men. Like, What, what are the barriers for you to, to entering into that? What's keeping you from that? Email me, talk to me, because I want to see us move forward in this way. Nehemiah is presented as a strong leader. He's decisive. He's bold. He's a man of action. But before he does anything, he prays. For him, prayer is first. He's heard the news. He's moved by it. And his first recourse is, I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. At Central Heights, one of our stated values is intentional prayer. We have said that this is of utmost importance to us. We value this. We've said we value prayer and its foundation to all ministry and spiritual growth. We believe prayer expresses our dependence on God, our willingness to hear his voice, and our need to know his will and life direction. Prayer expresses our dependence on God. Do we know how much we need God? Do we know how much we need him working in our circumstances? Do we know how much we need him working in our work, working in our church, working in our family? I mean, there's so many things in life that we cannot control. I think of it as a father and now soon-to-be grandfather. One of the things that is so often most on our hearts is, how are our children doing? Or it's going to be, how are our grandchildren doing? And, and there's so many ways in which you could be anxious about that. The most powerful thing that we can do is pray. And as our kids were growing up, I mean, we, we tried to saturate our kids' life with prayer. And as I look back, I can see these answers to prayer they couldn't be just coincidences. I remember when we moved back to Abbotsford from uh, the city of Vancouver, and we were a little bit concerned about one of our daughters, um, and, and because she was easily influenced by others, and moving back here, what kind of peer group would she get involved in? And you know, we put them in a public school, and, and when they went to school, and in that first week, I, I just remember how amazing it was, because when she went to school, she, she was... Uh, she had two opportunities to be involved in two different groups, and for some reason, she began to become friends with this particular girl. And if I, as a dad, had made a checklist of all the things that I would want for her in a friend, 
this girl that she just started to align with and to become really good friends with would have been that. Like she was perfect. She was everything I could have prayed for. How did that happen? Coincidence? If you're a skeptic, yes. I'm sure that is just a coincidence. But as we live a life of prayer, it's amazing how often we have these coincidences in our lives. The best strategy for life, for the good and the hard, is to be in constant communication with our Father, the Lord, in prayer. So that we're not just... We're not just moving into prayer in the middle of a crisis, but that it is the natural response of how we live in both the good times and the hard. Nehemiah was that kind of person. Bill Hybels, a well-known pastor in, in Chicago, tells the story of sitting down together with uh, a man and walking through in conversation uh, uh, some circumstances, giving him some advice, some counsel, some wisdom. And at the end of their conversation, Bill suggested to the man, well, you know, we, we, we should pray about this. And so uh, he said, you know, you go ahead and, um, and I'll pray. And so, you know, I don't know if he closed his eyes or they bowed their heads or whatever, but There's this awkward silence. You go ahead and you pray and then I'll pray. Awkward silence. And what followed was a realization that, you know, he didn't know how to pray. Didn't feel comfortable to pray. It was a real eye-opener for Bill to realize that people that could have been going to his church for years and years would maybe still not know how to pray or feel comfortable to engage in prayer. So this morning, as we look at Nehemiah and his lesson for our life, that we need to be moved by circumstances, that that we want to see change for God's good, for his glory and the well-being of people, and our first response is to pray. Nehemiah is also going to show us how we can pray. This is how. And he's going to give us, if we look at his prayer here, starting in verse 5, we can break it down into four areas, and I'm going to give us a template. This is, just, this is a way we could pray. Nehemiah says in verse 5, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. As we, we begin to pray, the first thing that we can do is just acknowledge God's greatness. There's something about taking a moment when all these things are coming at us as life does and just pausing and beginning instead of just to look horizontally and to think horizontally, to lift our eyes and the eyes of our heart up to heaven and say, oh, Lord God of heaven, the great God. And as we do that, everything changes because we're bringing into conversation, we're bringing into our circumstances, now the one who is above all our circumstances, who has the power and the right and the authority to change everything. So our prayer begins with the acknowledgement of God's greatness. As we do that, a friend of mine puts it, our problems become itty-bitty problems. As God becomes great big God, our problems become itty-bitty problems. We acknowledge God's greatness. Then Nehemiah moves into confessing sin. 
So we confess our sin. He says in verse six, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah's confession of, of sin is very context-specific. I mean, it was, it was real-time circumstances. This is why they've been disciplined, and Nehemiah sees how he has participated in that. But we are taught by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that this, this needs to be something that we do on a regular basis. He taught us to pray, Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's not that we need God to forgive us so that we will be eternally, um, you know, eternally made righteous before him. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, uh, he cleanses us and, and we, are, we are forgiven in a justified sense for eternity. We are made right with God. But there's this ongoing relationship that we have with God whereby the forgiveness of sins and the confession of our sins just keeps us in, just keeps us in that right place with God. It's a healthy thing to do. And of course, we do that with this mind that we are also going to be completely forgiving to other people. Forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. When I think about this as a parent, let's say you've got a child and <clears throat> your car was sitting in the driveway and the back window's been broken. You don't know how it happened, but your neighbor phoned you and tells you that it was one of your children who did that. So at the supper table that evening, you, you say, hey, um, I noticed the back window of our car was broken. Anybody know anything about that? And it's silent and nobody owns up to it. Well, you know what's going to happen over the next day or two is that that child's going to be wrestling with that. They're going to... They're gonna, <clears throat> they're going to feel... They're going to walk in shame and guilt. And, but you as a parent, you know, you're not... You, you don't have ill feelings toward them. You don't, you know, you're not angry at them. You just want them, you know that they need to walk in a rightness with you. And so you're just waiting for them to confess that so you can, because you want to offer them the forgiveness and for them not to carry that around with them. So it is with God. He loves us and, and uh, in Christ we're made completely righteous, but he wants us to be in that place where everything is, is right and we know it's right and we're not, not walking around with shame and guilt in our hearts. David in Psalm 32 said, you know, when I kept silent, it's like my bones wasted away. But then he talks about how he will acknowledge his guilt before the Lord. And at the end of the Psalm, he's rejoicing. He's got joy because things are right between him and God. We confess. We confess our individual sins, but I've said here, we confess our sin. As you look at Nehemiah's prayer, he said, confessing the sins of the people of Israel. See, there's this further role where, where we identify, where we take ownership, whether it's your church, it's your city, it's your family, whether it's your nation, where we step into that place of prayer. And on behalf of, let's say, for example, Canada, I will confess the things that are going on in our country that are displeasing to God. I will, because I, this country is mine. I participate in it. I take ownership for what's going on in my land. And so I stand in that place of prayer before God and I plead for mercy. 
I plead for grace. I don't just confess my own sins, but our sins. This is what Nehemiah did. He acknowledged God's greatness, confesses our sins. Then he rehearses God's promises. Verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are dispersed be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Nehemiah is very aware of God's word and his promises. And his, his prayer is very much informed by Deuteronomy. If you look at Deuteronomy and what it says there about God um, disciplining his children, but his willingness, his desire to bring them back, if they will just turn their hearts back to him. Nehemiah is completely aware of what God has promised and what he has said. Though they have rebelled and they've been disciplined, God has not forsaken them. Nehemiah knows this. How does he know that? Because he knows God's word. He knows God's promises. I find for me, one of the, the most powerful things for me in prayer is simply taking God's scripture, putting it in my own words and praying it back to him. Taking his promises at face value and praying it back to him. That's what Nehemiah did. He rehearsed God's promises. Lastly, request God's favor. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants. Nehemiah knew he was not the only one who was praying. He wasn't the only one who desired for, for that ch change to happen, for things to be made right. He wasn't the only one moved to urgency. The prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah is going to do something. He's going to act. But first he prays, and he prays that in his actions, in what he's going to do, that God will, will move with it, that God will move through it, that God's favor will rest upon him. See, when, when, when we align ourselves with God's glory, when we align ourselves with a desire to see him glorified, when we align ourselves with a desire to see the well-being of God's people among them, we can pray boldly asking God to bless what we're doing because we've aligned with his purposes. And we can ask boldly for God's favor. We acknowledge God's greatness. We confess our sins. We rehearse his promises and we request his favor as we pray First, I think in a healthy Canadian Christian view, um, there are a lot of good things that we need to rejoice in before God and enjoy. Good things, freedoms that he's given us to enjoy, prosperity that he's given us to enjoy, family and so many things that he's given us to enjoy. We need to enjoy them as gifts from God, um, play hard, but I also think there needs and should be this holy discontent for things that we see that are not right. I started this morning asking you, what bothers you? What disturbs you? No doubt there are things in, in your life, in your family, where you would really like to see a change. 
And you can bring all these things to God in the way that we've talked about. But I want to encourage us this morning to go beyond just the immediacy, immediacy of our own needs and begin to think beyond ourselves to God's people and to God's glory in particular. See, when I see our nation, I see things that aren't working well and how it needs to be changed. And then I think of history, and I think of history of the church. When God's glory, when God works in his church, when the church experiences a revival, God then works out through his instrument of change, which is the church. And he begins to touch the cities. He begins to touch the nations as the church is touched with his glory, as the church does well. The world is affected. It should matter to me that for many, God and his gospel today in Canada are seen as irrelevant and that there are so many people who do not yet know Jesus and so aren't worshiping him. That should matter to me. It should matter to me, I think, if the church that I am a part of, that we still have not seen the Spirit move in such dynamic ways that we are seeing people baptized every week and we're seeing more miracles and more healings. That should matter to me. Not in a negative sort of down sort of way, but this desire to see more and an urgency to see God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That should matter to me. This morning, we have the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's table, communion. I'm going to ask the service to prepare themselves, but before we do, I want to remind us that Jesus came, that he lived and died, and he rose from the dead, and he poured out his spirit so that we, the church, could be the temple of God, and that in and through us, our world can be changed, and we ourselves can go from glory to glory, that should be the urgency within our heart to pray, pray for and reflect on even as we take the Lord's Supper uh, this morning. I'm gonna pray for us. Lord, we come before you and today I just wanna acknowledge your greatness. Lord, I thank you that you created all things. You created us. You poured out your mercy and grace, Lord, that we could come into a right relationship with you and know you. Lord, I just want to confess that I don't always live in a way that truly reflects the, the awesomeness of what you've done for me. And I want to confess, Lord, that we as a church are not yet all that you desire for us to be. And sometimes, Lord, we, we don't obey you. We don't walk in the ways that you've called us to. And Lord, I just want to say we're sorry. Lord, I just want to Proclaim before you, as your word says, when we draw nigh unto you, you draw nigh unto us. When we draw near, Lord, even in confession and praise and glorifying you, you will draw nigh to us, Lord. And we ask and desire, Lord, that your favor would rest upon us, that you would fill us as a people of God with your spirit. May we truly evidence that we are your temple. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. We're going to um, participate now in...